Father God, I am so thankful that I can call this part of my family. This place here, restore these people who have gathered as a church as one body, Lord God. I believe not as a selfish desire to lift oneself up, but ultimately, Lord God, to worship you, to glorify you, to be corrected and disciplined by you. God, my prayer today as we lean into your word, God, that you will season us, that you will shape us, and you will sanctify us by the truth. <laughs> and if we did not come in to be filled up today, Lord God, may you correct our heart posture right now. <laughs> God, may we repent of our sins and our wicked ways and our selfish ways, Lord God, and lay that before you today and be a willing vessel to be transformed. God, I ask that your spirit will dwell in this place, that your spirit will bring life to my body and to the body of this believer, of the body of believers that are here today, Lord God. God, as we are in a church that's called Restore, and it's on Joy Avenue, I believe, Lord God, may you restore the joy in each and every one of us today because we know the end story, that your son died on the cross for each and every one of us here, Lord God, and we should be so thankful to, no matter what season, no matter what suffering, no matter what we are enduring right now, Lord God, whether we are in a good or bad season, all of that to the glory of God for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we be obedient to whatever you have in store for us today, God. May you speak through Pastor Mike today. May your truth come forth and transform us in whatever way it needs to transform us, God. If it's for correction, so be it. God, if it's to encourage us and to build us up today, so be it. But God, may we not contain the things that we learned today and hold it just to ourselves. God, may we be the obedient followers that help transform these communities and be faithful to be good servants and to be good stewards with the things that you are teaching us today. God, thank you that we get to meet in this place that we call the local body and the local church. Ultimately, so we can be the local body and the local church to this community and across the world the other six days of the week. Father, fill us up today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Little good man folly rises seven times. <laughs> If you want to take your Bibles, open up to John chapter 12, a portion of the scripture that Pastor Cleet read just a few minutes ago. Uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that we are in a series on revival. Not revivalism, as I talked about in the opening message, but biblical revival. The series name is To Live Again, which is actually what the Hebrew word chahya or revive means. It's the same thing that uh, the English word revive from the Latin word revere means, to live again. Now, as we talked about, um, it's sort of metaphorical because if somebody is alive in Christ, they never become dead in Christ. But.
but a believer can become all but dead in a spiritual coma, as I've described it, laid out on a gurney, life support tubes coming in and out of them, all but dead. But when someone is revived, they live again, they get off that gurney and they resume with renewed and fresh passion walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. When that happens to a lot of people in a given locale, then we're starting to talk about biblical revival. But as much as it is us getting off the gurney, it's a result actually of God coming down in a fresh way. Isaiah 64 and verse 1, a passage that historically has been used to pray for revival goes like this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I wish we would all pray this habitually. I'm talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We are going to get into this topic probably July-ish. But you have heard me talk about digging out the well of the Philistines, right? I won't recover the fullness of that illustration taken from Martin, Lo Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Revival. But what he talks about in pursuing revival, we need to dig out the rubbish that the Philistines, the world, has filled into the holes of our thinking, okay? So we talked about getting back to the book. That's foundational. Getting back to the unequivocal, unabashed authority of God's Word. Everything that he says, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Then Pastor Cleet talked about obedience. In revival, when the winds of revival begin to stir, people start to see, you know, I just can't cut and paste and pick and choose by obedience. Obedience is not optional. And then last week, I took up the warm and fuzzy coffee cup truth, returning to the wrath of God. People start to think about that as they move towards revival. Well, this morning, I want to do this. Something that's been on my heart for quite a while, and it just seems an appropriate time to share this message. It's been on my heart for a while. I want to talk to you about a painful principle. What kind of principle? A painful one, but it is ultimately fruitful. It's ultimately what? Fruitful. It's a painful principle of growth in the Christian life in general, but I say to you this morning, and here's the point of the message, a painful proof, uh, truth, specifically and in particular in regards to the pursuit of revival. So what is that painful principle in the pursuit of revival? That's a tongue twister right there, isn't it? Let me give you a few descriptions of it and then cut to the chase and give you the, the theme by way of sermonic title. Here is the painful principle of the pursuit of revival. That often loss precedes gain. That often there is attrition before there is advance. That there's an ebbing before there's a flowing. That there is a pruning before a greater harvest. That there is a winnowing before a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. Or as I'm putting it by way of title, sometimes and quite often in pursuing revival, there is pain 
before gain. Pain before gain. And I just think, by way of introduction, it's super important that we not only recognize this painful revival principle of pain before gain, but that we also actually embrace it, as difficult as it is. Because if we don't, we will not see what God just might be doing in the midst of loss, in the midst of winnowing and pruning and attrition and pain. And not being able to see that what, what God might be doing, we could very easily become distraught, right? Discouraged, like, what in the world's going on, Lord? And also, if we do not embrace this painful revival principle of pain before gain, we will not see the big picture. And often we will not let go of things that need to die so that ultimately there can be greater growth in every area of life. And I do believe this painful principle of revival, sometimes there's pain before gain, does apply to every level, every layer, every sphere of your life. Let me just tap on three as we open up. It applies to your personal life. This painful principle of revival growth, that is, there is pain before gain. And let me talk about how it can apply personally. You have certain dreams for your life, right? Certain goals, certain expectations, a certain conception, what your life ought to look like, what you want your life to look like. And those things are not bad. It is good to have dreams and goals and visions and all that. Maybe for you it was that you would be married by now. Or maybe that you would have a certain vocation by now. Or that you'd have a certain level of financial stability by now or a certain promotion or that the thing that you've been struggling with, you would no longer struggle with. Whatever it is, you have certain expectations and goals personally and they have not yet come to fruition. So you vacillate between this, I'm a failure or God is a failure. And it just might be that some of those dreams, goals, expectations need to die or at least be surrendered into God's hand because he may have a plan for you kingdom-wise that will be far more fruitful than your conception of what your life is supposed to look like. Or let's take marriage. Again, do, you, we, not, do we not go into marriage with certain expectations? Oh, yeah, right? Oh, yeah, right? Okay. Certain expectations, certain goals, certain hopes, certain dreams. I'm always going to be perfectly happy. I'm always going to be completely fulfilled. I'm always going to be completely understood. And on and on and on. Or maybe that you would have a certain number of children or children at all or that your children would do this or turn out this way. And, 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 and the reality is it hasn't worked out that way for you. And it might just be God wants to do something different in your marriage, kingdom-wise, that you cannot, you cannot see or even want right now. 
There might be some pain, not just in your personal life, but pain, I'm also, also saying, in your marriage life. Let me talk about a third level of pain that we will experience if we will see true gospel gain. That is at the church level, at the church level. What kind of expectations did you have about the church? What kind of goals, dreams? Did you, did you think there's never going to be any conflict? That there's never going to be any difference? And the people who have been here will always been here. We've been friends for so many years, they couldn't possibly ever leave and go somewhere else. And you know what? Some of that doesn't happen. There is conflict. There are differences. People leave, and you can tend to think, what in the world is going on, right? And then you add all that's happened in the last 1.5 years since corona stopped being just a beer but now a virus, right? In the year and a half since people started wearing hazmat suits around like we're at Chernobyl, in the year and a half since toilet paper became a very precious commodity. I had a dream last night that a bunch of kids were raiding a Connex container of toilet paper because I was thinking of the sermon. Now, probably someone can give me the interpretation of that. You can hold on to that, though. You know, since, since a cough in public raised the evil eye from everybody in a half-mile radius, since you have stickers six feet apart and you're not sure where you're supposed to stand and you're the line at Walmart, a lot's happened in the last year and a half, right? And then you add the explosion and the infusion of worldly ideologies regarding race and sexuality and everything else. We live in a crazy time. I'm just, I'm just calling a spade a spade. You know, and I shared this with, with, the, with the elder team several times in recent meetings that according to one article I read, more pastors have led the, left the ministry in this time more Christians have been disconnected from the church and more churches have closed. And I'm just trying to say that if we can't see the big picture, what God might be up to in that pain, personally, marriage-wise, church-wise, we could become discouraged and or get stuck in the same place because we're never really letting, willing to let go of some things. It does not mean that on all three of those levels, when we're experiencing pain, we shouldn't ask the question, well, maybe did I have some wrong expectations? Did I have some wrong goals? And the answer almost all the time is, duh, yes, right? And it doesn't mean also that when we experience pain, we shouldn't ask the question, is there anything I need to repent of? Is there anything I've done wrong? Is there anything I could do better? And the answer, duh, almost all the time will be, most decidedly, yes. But it is to say that in pursuing revival, and that's what we're doing, and not just in this little series right here, we have been praying for a true God-sent revival since we first moved here nearly a decade ago. I know everyone who's a leader has walked these streets saying, oh Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down? Oh Lord, would you pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon dry ground? Prayer after prayer after prayer. And it's, I'm just trying to say that in pursuing revival, when God begins to break in in a fresh way, when God begins to move, there is almost always pain before what? Gain. And it's not usually very much fun unless you're into pain. Then we have something else to talk about. 
but it is ultimately fruitful as you step into it with the mind of Christ. And so all I want to do this morning is just amplify the big idea, sometimes there's pain before there's gain. We're going to first of all look at Scripture just to make the case briefly. Then I want to, I want to ask you three questions, a little application to the heart. And then I want to give us a plan. How do I deal with that pain when it hits me personally or marriage-wise or church level? And then I want to make a specific appeal to you how to walk out this message in the coming months. Sound good? So first of all, Scripture. All we're going to do, and, and I'm going to be hitting, unlike last week where we walked Romans 1, I'm going to be in a lot of places this morning. I will come back to Romans 12. Uh, I'm sorry, John 12. We're going to start with the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born in the flesh in the backwoods, back 40, forgotten town of Nazareth. You know, they said about Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It was considered that way. He's born there in absolute obscurity. But at age 30 years old, which is actually about 26 A.D., he steps into the public limelight. People are just in, in masses streaming out to John the Baptist to receive the baptism of repentance. John has probably been doing this for days and days, weeks, weeks, months, who knows. But in the midst of a bunch of Middle Eastern men who probably all look pretty much the same, brown skin, tan skin, brown eyes, dark hair, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because in that mass of men was the God-man Jesus Christ, and he is baptized. And that baptism kicks off his public ministry. And from there, boom, things ramp up and accelerate quite rapidly. He calls his first disciples. He's got some kind of calling power. Hey, follow me. Boom, drop everything. Boom, they follow him. He does his first miracles. The first miracle was the wedding supper of Cain. I'm sure you would have liked that, turning water into wine. Would have saved some money. All kinds of miracles he started doing. And as he did this stuff, word about him started spreading rapidly. He cleanses the temple. He didn't use Ajax. He literally turned over tables in holy anger. The way God and people were being prostituted by religion. And then, uh, of course, in that particular incident, the, the masses loved that, but the religious leaders hated him for doing such a thing. Then you just go forward, I think it's a John chapter 4, one of those powerful and poignant passages of, all, passages of all Scripture. Do you remember the woman at the well? Anybody know that, that story? Powerful. And, and people often go to that story, by the way, to say we just need to love people. Well, we just need to love people, and we just need to love people the way Jesus loved the woman at the well. So let me tell you what he did. First of all, he connected with her when no one else would, right? He was willing to cross a boundary. You can cross any boundary, by the way, that God calls you to, 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 to cross. Don't believe the lie that you have to be just like people you're trying to reach in order to reach them. Because if, who was the apostle to the Gentiles? Who was the least Gentile of the early apostles? 
Paul, for crying out loud. You read about his, his, his religious resume as a Jewish man. God sends him to cross that boundary. Obviously, he learned. He said, I became all things to all people that I might gain some. So we learn and we grow. But if God has called you to reach somebody, no matter how different you are, you carry a universal message, the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Jesus modeled that there. He connected with her. He communicated with her, right? There's so much about communication. He showed compassion to her, but he also confronted her. After he, he spent a little time with her, he said, hey, why don't you go get your husband? What does she say? Well, I don't really have a husband. He says, oh, I know that. Oh, I know that. You're married, you married five, and the one you're with, i.e. sleeping with right now, you're not even married to. He confronted her in her sin. And it's a beautiful story of redemption. Word spreads out from episode after episode, salvific encounter after salvific encounter like that. His ministry just continues to pick up steam. He chooses the 12. He preaches a sermon on the mount probably multiple times before multiple crowds around the lake. He raises a widow's son from the dead. Wouldn't you like to have been there that day? He calms the storm. Boom, be silenced. And this hurricane-like weather, it just becomes like a lake of glass. He casts out a demon-possessed man. He, par he heals a paralyzed man, let for the roof. Remember that? He takes a leper and makes him clean. He heals a man with a lame hand on the Sabbath, which the religious leaders were really crazy about. And on and on and on and on and on. He heals a blind man, and then he does this. He feeds 5,000 people at once, which is a few fish, right, and a few, uh, a few loaves of bread. And by the way, that's probably more than 5,000 because that's talking about the man. If each man was married and had a handful of children, it could have been 20,000, 30,000. It was a doggone miracle. His ministry is on fire is the point I'm trying to make. Are you all with me? The masses are streaming to him. They're coming after him. He has one doggone successful ministry. Would you not agree? What a success. Now, here's where the turn comes. Evidently, Jesus did not go to one of those church growth conferences, which says you give people what they want and they'll come instead of what they really need. So they probably would, if he'd gone to one of these conferences, they would have surveyed what's going on. They said, oh man, just keep what you're doing. Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep confronting those mean-spirited religious people. Because that always sells with a certain, you know, crowd. Keep doing the miracles. Those are fun to watch. And keep bringing the goodies. Can you do sourdough bread next time? Just a, just a request. Keep doing that kind of stuff. What does Jesus do now? This is the turning point of his ministry. Instead of doing more of that, he actually says in John chapter 6, you know why you're following me? You ain't following me because you saw the messianic significance of what I did. You're only following me because you got goodies from me. You're only following me because he says, you ate bread that I gave you. You guys remember that in John 6? 
What are you doing trying to explode this ministry that is going so well? Huh? And then he starts saying some really hard stuff. Like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you got no part of me. Or how about this? No one can come to me unless the Father draw him. That's real popular, isn't it? Later on, he'll say stuff, unless you take up the cross, which wasn't some cute little piece of jewelry, but an instrument of death, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you, you cannot be my disciple. He does a whole bunch of stuff like that. And just like that, the apex, the zenith, the heyday of his ministry implodes. People start stepping back. I'm not so sure if I want to follow you anymore. In fact, so many start falling back on Jesus. He even asked his own disciples in John chapter 6, verse 67, well, are you going to fall back too? You guys remember that? Cleet read it. Are, are you out too? <laughs> just think about the loss that he just experienced, right? The attrition that he experienced, the winnowing, the pruning, the pain. And that's only going to ramp up even more for the rest of his ministry, the other half of his ministry. You know what kind of stuff's going to happen? It's not just, we love to say, the mean religious people hated Jesus. You know who else hated Jesus? Just about everybody. Because the masses stopped following him too. They will cr cry out, crucify him. It was the leaders and the masses. And add pain to shame, even one of the 12 guys he had done life with, he had discipled, he had poured into. Judas betrays him, which should inform us we can always grow in our discipleship, but if somebody you poured into goes south spiritually, disremembered it happened with the best discipler ever. Not only that, but even those who were his true followers deny him in, 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 in the presence of a 15-year-old young woman. You know, Peter warming his hands by the fire. Hey, you were with the rabbi, weren't you? I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know him, right? Pain and shame and loss and attrition and winnowing. What a miserable step down from the heyday of his ministry not that much long, longer earlier. But of course, we are able to see what they missed, right? They, they were so close to it, they couldn't see it, could they? <laughs> that that pain was part of Acts chapter 4, God's sovereign hand and plan to, be, to bring in eternal gain. Because all of that led to the sacrifice of himself on the cross for our sins. And since rising from the dead 2,000 years ago, there has been the gain of people from every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, generation after generation after generation. Just think, just think, just think. If we could take a snapshot of 24 hours of worldwide worship of Jesus, what would it look like right now? India, China, Albania, Africa, Australia, South America, Central America, North America, the New Hebrides, on and on and on and on. People from, that's some serious gain, isn't it, baby? 
That pain led to gain. And that pain was necessary for the gain of God's church. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus Christ is. He is now the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of God's elect. He is the author and finisher of our salvation. He is the head over all things of the church. Do you see then that principle illustrated in the life and ministry of Jesus? That there is what before what? Pain before gain. That's not only illustrated in the life of Jesus, it's explicitly stated by some crystalline statements that came out of his mouth. I'm going to give you one. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, I'm not a farmer. Susan has a great green thumb, lots of stuff in our backyard. I don't know that much, but I know this. That if you take a little, little piece of grain from wheat... You can eat it right and derive a little bit of nutrition from it. I don't know how much, probably not a whole lot, but you would get some. But if you take that grain, instead of eating it, and you let it die and go into the ground, what's going to happen? It's going to bring up a whole lot more. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. When we are willing to die, there's this often greater death before a greater experience of resurrection life. Now, he was first and foremost prophesying his own resurrection, right? But he was also teaching us the kingdom principle that sometimes there is pain before gain. And you know what? There is this principle that I think life illustrates about everywhere. That very rarely does God use anyone or any body, but that he first doesn't break them. We have a beautiful quarter sawn oak table. That's our, that's our main table for eating. We bought that years ago in South Bend, Oregon, off an Amish man who was great craftsman. That was once an oak tree, right? A beautiful oak tree. But that oak tree had to be broken and quarter sawn and shaved and sanded and whittled down to become functional for us as a table. So remember this principle. God breaks that which he will use. Why? So it's clear it's him doing his thing through us, not us through us. There is pain before gain. I'm going to illustrate just really quickly from the book of Acts. In Acts, you see that small band of followers collected in the upper room blows up into 3,000 plus on an incredible launch day for that church of Jerusalem when, boom, the Spirit was poured out, right? Can you imagine that launch day? 3,000. And if that's just talking about men, again, that could be 12, 15,000. And then they did Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The perfect church, right? They met. There was fellowship. There was home groups. There was gathered worship. There was DNA. There was men. I mean, they did it at all. But apparently, somewhere along the way, this newly born megachurch lost its kingdom focus. Because you remember Jesus had said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, 
to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But man, they had too much good fellowship going on. They had some incredible ministries. And they need to, to grow, to build the bigger auditorium and all the rest. I'm obviously talking tongue out of cheek, but I think you get the point. Somehow they didn't move out as God had said, you ought to move out. So what does God do? <laughs> Takes the pin out of a pineapple grenade and rolls it up into them, the grenade of persecution. Boom! Because God is over everything, right? And he sends them out. After all, it says in 1 Peter 4.17, church family, judgment always begins in the house of God. And they finally move out. And as a result of that pain, there is incredible kingdom gain. Churches are planted, lost people are reached, and on and on. And in the church of Antioch, you can read about that up in chapter 11, was a much smaller church likely than Jerusalem was and yet a much more impactful church. You know why? You can trace the modern missions movement to the church in Antioch. And Paul, conservatively, out of that church, planted at least 20 to 25 churches, if not a whole host of others. And if each church had that mentality, 2025, 2025, 2025, 20, right? You have massive gain after that pain. So all I'm trying to do is illustrate and amplify this this revival principle of what? Say it out loud, would you? There's pain before gain. Now, three questions now. Question number one. What, just take a breath. I'm out of breath myself a little bit, okay? All right, let's take a breath. Let's take a breath. Let's take a breath. And I was leaving some stuff out. What needs to die in your idea of what your life should look like personally in order for God to do his kingdom plan thing through you. What needs to die in your idea of what your life should look like personally in order for God's kingdom plan to happen in your life? Is the Spirit telling you anything right now? And let me ask you this then. Are you willing to go through some pain then of those things dying so that you can have gain. Except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not giving you, you know, health and wealth theology like better. You, 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 wanted, a, you wanted a Subaru. If you just hand it to God, he'll give you a Cadillac. I'm, I'm not saying that. I, I'd take either one of those just so you know, okay. I mean kingdom-wise, Right? Kingdom-wise, a fruitful, kingdom-impacting life. What needs to die in your life personally? Second question, what might need to die in your idea of what your marriage should look like? We have a lot of married people here, right? What might need to die in what your idea of what your marriage should, should look like in order for God to accomplish, without hindrance by you, his kingdom purposes in your life. Are you then willing to endure some pain for kingdom gain, gospel gain? Except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And third of all, what needs to die in your idea of what the church is supposed to be like 
in order for God to accomplish his kingdom purpose through this local church. Pause. I wonder if the Spirit's bringing anything to mind right now. It is for me. Maybe we can talk about that sometime. Okay, are we willing then to go through pain so that we can have kingdom gain? In a way we would not have if we didn't go through that pain. Except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth an incredible harvest. Now, if you are experiencing, and I'm sure you are, and if we are experiencing, and I'm sure we are, pain in any of these areas, given that we are actually going after revival, and not just in the series, but in our life and in this ministry, it just may be that God is answering some of those prayers and, boom, moving in a fresh way. And that this pain could be preceding unprecedented kingdom gain. I'm not going to shine you. It's not a bed of roses. It's not a cakewalk, right? It's not about comfort and getting everything I need fulfilled. I think I need. It's, 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 it's really, it's not about the fulfillment of our hopes and dreams for our lives, but actually the death of some of them so that God's purposes can be fulfilled in us, whether it be personally, maritally, or church-wise. And that's what it's all about anyway. God's purpose is right. How glibly we can say with the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God. Do we really think that? Are we really willing to press into that? How much do we then need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, huh? I hope by the time we get to that part of Pursuit and Revival, we are, we're ready. We're ready. We're ready. But we're just doing some digging right now. We're just doing some digging. We're just doing some digging. So then, third of all, having laid out biblically the principle that oftentimes in pursuing revival, there's pain before gain, having asked you three questions, are you willing for God then to do that on the personal level and the marriage level and the church level, I want to third of all ask you, how are you going to deal with that pain? How are you dealing with that pain, especially, especially when you can't yet see or sense any doggone gain? (laughs) Like, it's a little easier when I can see some gain, right? Well, okay. You know, you're working out and it, and it kills you, but you can feel yourself getting a little better shape. Okay, I can see some gain. But what about when you're not seeing gain? How do you deal with the pain? Now, here it is. My, my thoughts uh, just based on Scripture and how I've had to face pain. I would say you got to, first of all, avoid two ditches. Avoid the ditch on one side of being, you know, cavalier, like whatever. Avoid the ditch of being cavalier, but also avoid the ditch of being crushed. So avoiding the ditch of being cavalier, that would be like, you know, whatever. Friends, they come and go. People come and go. It was just a dream. It was just a goal. It was just an expectation. It was just a group. Just keep it moving. Carry on. 
Now, who do you think probably by, by default in nature leans that way among men and women? Men. I mean, again, it's, this is not universal, but we, we, because the way God's wired us, we, we, we tend to lean that way. Um, God has not made us men to be robots, okay? I'm, 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 I'm learning that, okay? I'm learning that, um, nor does God expect us to be robots. He gave us emotions and feelings, and it's okay to be real about them. On the other hand, avoiding the ditch of being cavalier, we also want to avoid the ditch of being crushed. Because the living God has something else for you or for your marriage or for the church that will be far greater in kingdom impact than if you had your little idea of what it should look like, right? And I truly believe that there resides in the heart of every genuine, born-again, blood-washed believer in Jesus Christ a desire for God's kingdom over ours. That's why Jesus said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, because we wake up thinking, my kingdom come, my will be done. And so a message like this smacks us in the face. It smacks me in the face. It says, oh, no, not my kingdom, thy kingdom. And that's somewhere flickering in the heart of every believer. Now, avoiding these two ditches of being cavalier on one hand and crushed on the other hand, practically three things. I would say three things. Number one, mourn the loss. It's okay to mourn a loss. On any of those three levels, we mourn the loss. It's okay to say it hurts. Or I don't understand. Or even how could this be good? Or I'm struggling. It's okay to lament. It's okay to grieve. It's okay then out of that also to repent where you need to, right? Or maybe you did something unnecessary to cause pain. Or whether you had some kind of dream or vision that was never God's in the first place, so you're pitting its failure on him when he never promised you that. But mourning that, grieving that, lamenting that in a way that's holy and healthy for you personally and not dangerous or hurtful for you or your marriage or the church, to do that in a holy, healthy way. Number two... Why don't you celebrate what God is actually doing? We celebrate what God is doing. Often we become, and we, it's, it's true for all of us, we become so focused on our pain, right? We can't see the gain that's actually already coming. And if we had eyes to look for that gain and a heart posture for that gain, we might actually be very encouraged in the midst of that grieving. So... <laughs> There's something just encouraging, is there not, about looking for the gain, for looking for what God is doing. You ought to do that in your personal life. You ought to do that in your marriage life. You ought to do that in church life. Take stock of what God is doing at all three of those levels, and you might actually be utterly blown away. It is. Uh, like on the church side, for example, it is like pastors everywhere are saying, I just was at a funeral yesterday and, and one pastor was grieving because he had lost seven people or seven units, family units or whatever, because, you know, they didn't like how the church had dealt with this issue. And you know, all the issues are this issue or this issue or this issue and this issue. 
And, and pastors and, and just Christians all together in relationship with people are grieving people who, who once walked with the church one and a half years ago, but don't now for various reasons. And we do grieve that if we actually had a real relationship, right? But I also want to do, like other pastors and other Christians are exhorting me to remember, to rejoice. For instance, we're talking about church, new people that are here now that weren't here 1.5 years ago. Praise God for that. And also for the clarification of our purpose and mission that is forged through the furnace of trial. So that we might be in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, church. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And perhaps I can expand upon some of that in a future time. And then finally, after mourning and celebrating, you're probably going to do them all at the same time. This is not step one, step two. Done with that, done with that, done with that. You keep on doing all that for as long as necessary. You finally anticipate what might be coming. What is the big idea of this message? That there's pain before gain. There's loss before gain. There's attrition before advance. There's pruning before greater harvest. There was winnowing before spirit outpouring. There is pain before gain. And I just happen to think that the lion of the tribe of Judah is on the move right now. And that there is going to be some unprecedented gain that's going to come out of this pain. That God is taking stock and God is doing something special and God uses microscopic things and macroscopic things to accomplish his will. He said, I am the one who declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. That's who our God is. So I want to say to you, singles, not singles, Individuals, okay? Talking a personal application. Chew on Philippians 1.6. You can be confident of this very thing, that God, who has begun a good work in you, will perform it through the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. He will do it. You say, you don't know what a life mess my life is. I don't, but he does. But he is able in spite of that, and actually through that to accomplish all of his good purposes. And you walk out of here just with that, that though things are a mess, God is going to finish his work in me. I, I, that's great. That's awesome. Praise God. Married couples, be intentional about your relationship with each other, all right? We prayed for Arpith and Michelle. And listen, if marriage was designed ultimately not so that we can be all fulfilled and happy, that happens in marriage, but so that God can be glorified and reflect the gospel, don't you think that the enemy's got his 115 howitzers trained right on your marriage? And I'm sick and tired of hearing about marriages go south because they didn't give a doggone about renewal, about revival. Starting personally and then going collectively to a marriage. And I know this is a strong word, family, but I mean it. I've heard more stories of pastors and different people in the last year and a half. Okay? If you are on the rocks, do not suffer in isolation. Yes. Bring it to the light. Yes. 
before there's so much water in the bridge, there's no idea that there could ever be healing, okay? And then, and then church-wise, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Things looking different, right? But is God moving? And are we learning? And are we growing? And is there pain before? Yes. Well, I close rather undramatically. No crazy illustration or anything like that. Because I want to speak right to your heart with a specific twofold appeal on the faithfulness thing and the service thing, okay? Then we're done. Then we're done. And I've, I've gone long. I've gone long the last few Sundays. You're very gracious, okay? You're very gracious. Um, we had men's ministry yesterday. I was so thrilled. We had 25, well, 24 men and one young buck named Titus out there. That was cool. And we've, pr pretty much since we launched it this year, we've kept about the same numbers, which is rather remarkable, frankly. Usually just like that. And one of the things we encouraged at the close of the meeting was we want fat men. We did have a breakfast. It was a lighter breakfast, so we couldn't have gotten fat out of that one. The breakfast before we could have with all the bacon. But by fat, it's simply an acronym for faithful, available, and teachable. I'm asking you, I'm asking you, I'm asking you, I'm asking you, I'm asking you as one of the under shepherds of this church, will you be fat? Don't misquote me, all right? Will you be faithful? Will you be available? Will you be teachable? And there's two ways you can manifest that. We, as far as our main gatherings, we're, we're a two-cycle engine starting August 4th. We're asking you to be fat with this Sunday morning gathering. Because there's something that happens when we come together. We know what that something is. God is present. The Spirit is here. We worship. We pray. We study God's Word and we hear from Him. I'm asking you to, listen, you, to give that the priority you give other things in your life. I'm not trying to browbeat you. I'm trying to just be real with you. And then I'm asking you to be faithful and available and teachable starting what night in August? Thank, who said that? August 4th. August 4th. We're going to have a meal, and I did the extended announcement last week, a meal, and I'm asking seven other family units to come to me and say, hey, we, we'll, we'll get behind one of those meals. We'll provide it. We'll, we'll, we'll get a bunch of pizzas or whatever the case may be. I'm asking seven of you to do that, but I'm asking all of you to be faithful. 30 minutes of mealtime fellowship, 30 minutes of Bible study led by one of the elders, and 30 minutes of um, prayer. So it's going to be relational, instructional, and intercessional. And we're going to hit all kinds of topics. The first topic that Pastor Cleet has lined up is justice and righteousness, a six-week series that will be tag-taught uh, by the leaders here. I'm asking you to be fat with those opportunities, and now I'm asking you also to be fat with these opportunities to serve. Tina's going to come in just a few moments and give a super high-charged uh, announcement for our kids' club. But listen, wouldn't it be a shame if the only thing we ever did was we came here to worship God ourselves? It's a beautiful thing, but that's the only thing we do. It actually calls into question the reality of our worship because we, we're called to reach out, right? 
And one opportunity we have to do that, a small opportunity, but it could have major implications, is a Restore Kids Club August. I'm glad we got that straight. Um, <laughs> July 29th, 30th, and 31st. That's from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. But guess what? We need help. And that help is not a call to Tina July 28th at 9.15 in the evening. Hey, what do you need for tomorrow? No, we're starting to ramp up and plan now. She needs 25 people so that we can pull off a crazy good kids club that will serve the kids, yes, that are already here. We're so grateful for every child here, but also for us to reach out in the streets weeks ahead of time so that we can bring many of our neighbors into the fold here for the kids club. I'm asking you to be faithful and available and teachable. And I'm also asking you to be faithful and available and teachable for the nursery. A lot of things stopped, right, during the, the shutdown. We want to serve families. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. So we're asking you, we're asking you, we don't want the same person in there every two or three weeks. We have a whole bunch of people here who can serve in the nursery. We're just asking you to do that. So here, here, here's my question. What needs to die in order for greater life to come forth? What comfort needs to die, okay? Um, maybe, 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 your pri maybe your priorities, maybe you're upset that, you know, we're not, we're not doing home groups for the season. We're going to this combined relational gathering. What needs to die so that God's kingdom plan can bring great gospel gain in our lives? This is the word of God. Katie, if you and... Josh would come, and I, I would, I'd be remiss if I didn't close this way. I want to ask each and every person here, has there ever been a time when you died at the foot of the cross? Ever been a time when you came to the end of yourself, and you said, man alive, I, I, I don't know any verse in the Bible, but I know that I'm a sinner. Remember when God started working in my life, I couldn't have told you where third Habakkuk is, Okay. But I just knew because it was the hound of heaven, the Puritans called the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin. And I knew I needed a Savior. And by the grace of God, I heard that, that song, you know, the truth, that the only thing that can wash away my sin is the blood of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And I surrendered at the foot of the cross. Have you, and, and, and it was only because of the Spirit calling me. No man can come unless the Father draws him. But you'll know the Father is drawing you when you're like, man, I want this. And the first thing you feel is not a pleasant feeling that's called conviction. But God intends that conviction to lead you to the cross so you can be free of condemnation. So if you're under conviction, look to the cross, come and confess your sin, and receive this edict over you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you'll be able to say with Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I not live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes. What needs to die? Nick and Tina will be over there to receive people who need prayer and counsel. Can, maybe you have never done that. Maybe I'm, I'm going to look really funny getting up in front of everybody. So what? He was hung in front of everybody. So don't, don't, don't read. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Go get yourself some prayer. 
Go get yourself some counsel and say, man, I'm struggling. My head knows this needs to die, but my heart doesn't want it to happen. That's okay. God works with realness, right? Part of grieving and then celebrating and then anticipating. 